On this episode of Long Riders Radio, we're going to talk with Mario Winkleman of LD Comfort and find out how all your LD Comfort gear gets made. Riders, Justin here, hoping your holiday season has started out well. I know mine has. Uh, getting ready to go on a little bit of a trip here. Uh, so trying to get this episode ready to go before uh, the holidays hit. So uh, wish you the best on getting all your uh, farkles for Christmas under the Christmas tree. Hope Santa's nice to you. On this episode, we're going to talk with Mario Winkleman. And Mario, as everyone I think knows, is the guy behind LD Comfort. Now, LD Comfort's just right down the road a piece from my house, so I decided for this episode it might be fun to do a little remote. Uh, I've never done that before, so well, hopefully it turned out well, and hopefully the audio is good. Uh, we talked with Mario, went really all through the entire process of LT Comfort, um, from the moment the raw material comes in to the moment it goes out, and tried to cut it down to the to the salient points to the to keep it interesting and keep the flow going. For those of you who don't know what LD Comfort is. LD Comfort, in my opinion, is probably one of the finest uh, finest pieces of clothing I've ever owned. Uh, it's a base layer that's made in Hoquiam, Washington, and pretty much everyone I know in the long-distance riding community uses it. It's uh, really good stuff. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Mario. The building that houses the world headquarters of LD Comfort is very unassuming and seems to blend in with the surrounding buildings. A sign hung on the maroon exterior wall proclaims long-distance comfort with its famous logo. In fact, if you didn't know what you were looking for, you might drive right past it. It was here that I met Mario Winkleman, owner and founder of LD Comfort, for my tour. I'd been on the road for about an hour to get down to Mario's, and I needed to use the restroom before we started. It was in the restroom that I noticed the first thing that looked vaguely out of place for a manufacturing facility, a sign that read, Everyone must shower before entering the pool. I thought to myself that this was kind of odd, and that Mario must have some kind of nice place to relax after a long day of riding. However, when Mario and I stepped out through the lobby onto the manufacturing floor, my curiosity was piqued again. Pictures of swimmers adorned the walls, and at my feet on the cement was a stenciled warning that read, No Diving. Well, that was a rule on the floor that says no diving because this used to be an indoor swimming pool for the city of Hoquiam. It was called the Hoquiam Aquatic Center. And we still like to adhere to that rule because if you dive now, you're going to hit the cement. And there is a cement cap that's over the swimming pool. And it was an Olympic-sized swimming pool, um, six lanes I think it had in it. But uh, we didn't need a great big hole in the ground, and no one else did either. But I could see that this was a very fine building. It's got steel uh, framework on here with great big, huge laminated beams for the roof and a block. It's an open area. It doesn't have any pillars or anything in it to interfere with what you want to do. And I thought, that's pretty easy to fill a hole in the ground. So we just cut a big old hole in the wall up there and put in a 14-foot roll-up door. And we backed into dump trucks, and we had 75 dump trucks full came inside here. And they actually, we built a road down to the bottom of the pool, 
and the dump trucks were inside the pool dumping until we backfilled the whole entire pool and leveled it off then we put sand over the top of it to smooth it out and then two inch thick foam insulation over the whole thing we also put a tile edge around where the pool used to be so you could kind of mark this was the edge of the pool those are hand cut tiles we did i don't know why we did that just because we thought it deserved some recognition <laughs> but we put hot water tubes also throughout the whole floor and then we cut a trench out to the hook it up to the old boiler that used to heat the showers and uh, now that hot water gets pumped into the floor and this entire building is heated by this big huge concrete slab that uh, stays warm and the air doesn't get uh, up to the ceiling where it gets really hot up at the top and it's still cold down here it's much more efficient because we're actually heating the concrete instead of heating air which easily escapes if you were to open the big roll-up door when it was cold um, you would feel that cold draft come in but as soon as you close that door why the temperature would still be comfortable especially where the working level is and we found that to be the most cost-effective way to heat this big space and we're yeah. very happy that we put that in now however that big roll-up door is used for something a little more important than hauling rocks and sand it's where the raw materials that will become your ld comfort gear arrive as mario and i walked over towards that door he explained a little bit about how those raw materials arrive at the shop we have a, a truck that uh, delivers the fabric to us that fabric is made in for us specifically to my specifications uh, in North Carolina at a mill there and once we have that fabric made and shipped over here we just roll this door up and we unload pallets of the fabric and it comes in individual rolls and they're stacked up on that pallet and there are different kinds of fabric for different purposes we do make two product lines here one is LD Comfort the other is Grace Harbor Unders and we make some specialty products as well just to give you an idea of the scale we're talking about here, these rolls of fabric that Mario's describing offloading from this truck are about five feet long and about a foot and a half in diameter. They're huge. And it's just a tad bigger than what you're going to find at your neighborhood uh, fabric store. We then turned our attention to an enormous table, which runs about half the length of the shop. We have a 50-foot long uh, cutting table, and if you'll see, it has a track on the side of it this way that holds that fabric spreader. That fabric spreader has four wheels on it. Let's see, two on the right-hand side, which are on the track, and then a couple on the left-hand side, which sit on the table, but then easily you can roll this all the way down this 50-foot long table, and it has a spool on top with a rod that goes through it. I guess the easiest way to recognize this way may be like a roll of toilet paper, but about three or four rolls wide and uh, the fabric comes off of this spool and it gets uh, woven down through this feeder. This is a tensioner. And then we start at that end of the table and put a weight on it and we spread that fabric back this way. And then we cut it off. This has a blade on a track all the way in front of it. It's an electric round knife. And we turn that on and just drag it across there and it cuts the fabric off to the same length each time. Then we go back to the beginning and start again with another spread until we have a number of layers. Now one reason we don't 
go back and forth in one long continuous layer is because the way the fabric is designed, it is different on the inside and outside. And each side we want to have uh, facing the same way. When we're done with all that, we have enough layers, we'll take a sheet of paper and it's marked off in, in gradients and we have our patterns transferred over to that piece of paper for what it is that we want in this spread. Now, once that happens, we have to let this fabric rest because it is a stretch fabric and it comes mildly stretched on the roll. And if we don't let it relax and settle into its normal spot, when you cut it, you're going to see different layers traveling apart in different areas. And then the sizes of your patterns are going to be different and we want a consistency so we allow that fabric to rest for a while. So once those pieces are, are, are all spread and the patterns are on the top, we use a, a very tall, about a nine inch razor blade knife. It looks like a, a gigantic jigsaw, hmm. but the blade on it is actually a razor knife. And even as you cut, it has self-sharpening uh, attributes to where you push a button and a grinder goes down and sharpens that blade wow. up. So you don't have any ragged edges on your edges of your patterns. Anyway, all of those uh, pieces and parts get cut off of this and then they get transferred over to these rolling racks and the top of the shelves is an exact match to the height of this table. So then we take those carts and we stage them right in front of this American flag because as you see, everything here is made in America. The uh, fabric is made in America, and certainly, of course, the assembly and, and all that's made right here in Hoquiam, Washington. And uh, we're kind of proud of that. Uh, I don't know yet if it's that cost effective to do because there's certainly some very fine sewing facilities around the world that might be able to do this a little cheaper, but the idea here is to have American-made products and also employ some of the local people, and if we can continue to grow, then we can employ more people here on Grays Harbor, which they've labeled as a depressed area. And we who work here uh, don't like to be labeled d depressed. It's like, no, we're going to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, if you will, and uh, we'll create something on our own. And that's what we have here in these facilities. And just for a little bit of background for, for the folks who aren't from the, the Washington area, Hoquiam, well, still is, but used to be much more of a, of a big timber town. And with the, the downturn in the timber industry, Hoquiam has been hit definitely pretty hard. And yes. pretty cool to have a, a, a solid local, uh, local employer like Mario. Yeah, well, that's what we're trying anyway. That's our attempt. And also, we were very, very big in the fishing industry over at Westport. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's still a lot of fish out here, but the industries have gone down quite a bit. And uh, they're still here, they're just not functioning at the scale they were uh, many years ago. But uh, we have a very good port here in Grace Harbor. And uh, I think that this can be a great industrial center and it's gonna take uh, myself and a number of other businesses to come in here and keep the economy going here that uh, will sustain our families for, for many generations. And just as a side note, it really is one of the most beautiful places in the world too, so. Oh, I think so. Yeah. It, it rains a lot here, by the way, so you people from California, don't <laughs> don't come up here thinking it's gonna be heaven. <laughs> Unless you like rain, then it's quite, yeah. it's very good. 
I may be a little bit biased in my assessment too. So <laughs> yeah. Well, that brings me to a point I'd like to make about the the base layers that I make and and the reason that there are two different layers woven together in one piece of fabric is that the inside always stays dry. Even if you were to soak it in a bucket of water and you take it out and wring it, the inside is already completely dry because the moisture always transfers to the outer layer and what's against your skin stays dry. Now that might not always be important, but here in the Northwest where we live in the rain capital of United States, yes, it's very important almost every day. There were days here where we had a hundred consecutive days of rain. So some people might say, well, no wonder you guys are depressed there. But, <laughs> uh, actually, we live in this and we work in it and we play in it. And it's very important for us to be able to stay dry. And many years ago, I suffered from the inability of my base layers. We used to call them undergarments, but uh, they w couldn't perform like I needed to. When you stand out in the rain for 10 hours a day for 14 years, um, that gets uncomfortable. You almost have to heal up the next day because your skin is so tenderized from the moisture. So. Um, this is a product that the hunters and fishermen, not only motorcycle riders, but everybody really needs, especially if you're going to work hard out there in, in the woods or outside or play hard. Um, my grandkids and my kids as well, they all play soccer and uh, football and baseball. And so keeping dry is important, especially if you're moving around and doing a lot of physical activities, because if your skin gets tenderized from the moisture, it's easily going to get chafed and roughed up and, and raw from your garments chafing against it. And that doesn't happen with the garments that we make. Your skin is always intact. It has its normal moisture content and stays resilient against those kinds of abrasions. So from here, the fabric's been cut, and it's ready to be sewn together into, more or less, the garment you'd come to recognize from LD Comfort. The sewing itself is done in the next section of the shop, which contains eight sewing machines. However, these aren't exactly like your mom's singer. They're a little more intense. Let's go over to this one. This is our first uh, machine that we use, and this one is uh, uh, an older machine. It's called a flat lock. They're highly specialized in that they have uh, four needles that go down inside the uh, two pieces of fabric and they're joined together and one side is trimmed off so it's absolutely perfectly smooth and straight when that seam goes together. It also has a bottom looper and a top looper and this particular seam that we use, it's, you can't pull those apart. They're not going to come apart but also they will move and stretch as the fabric does so when you move you're not going to be constricted by having seams that just uh, hold solid. Now that's in uh, comparison to someone who will lay two pieces of fabric on top of each other and sew the edge on perhaps a serger. And while that seam may hold pretty well, it leaves a bulk of fabric on the inside of the garment and that's what we wanted to avoid in our base layers because they are right against your skin. The next machine we came upon was called a serger and I asked Mario how it differed from the previous machine and what it's used for. Well, this one does a lot of things on the edges and treatments on the edges of the fabric. And we use this one for uh, sewing on the waistbands. And our waistbands, uh, incidentally, are, are inside the garment in that the dry side of the fabric is folded to the outside. Mm -hmm. 
so that you don't feel that seam that goes around the outside where the uh, the band is it's perfectly smooth and some uh, clients or customers actually uh, really appreciate that because many other garment manufacturers will fold it to the inside and even wrinkle it and then say see how lovely that looks and I think to myself well yeah but I would rather feel it nice and smooth on the inside because if you wear something all day long in the end those seams that dig in and stuff like that are going to be uncomfortable and that's not going to happen when I ride and I don't want that to happen to any of my customers this one also puts in uh, rubber uh, stretch things that we use for the roof fly which is uh, the men's has a fly in them and anyway you can see the leg banding right there we use a gripper in the legs from the LD Comfort riding shorts because we do not want them to ride up and those grippers are not hmm. made for constriction they actually have a traction on them it's a one-way traction and we put those in the bottom hmm. of the riding shorts and that's what that serger uh, does so the next machine on the tour was something that looked like it had something bolted to pretty much every surface possible. Hoses running everywhere, thread, etc. And it looked like something that I'd really probably want to stay away from while it was running. We also have uh, here a cover stitch. And this one's pretty fancy. It has a lot of air pistons on it and air hoses. It's hooked up to a compressor that's in the other room. And that same compressor runs that flat lock. Uh, pulling away the trimmings that come off of it. But on this machine, all these air hoses and stuff like that, they'll lift the feet uh, to put your garment underneath and you just let go and it pops the feet back down. It has electric or air, air piston knives that cut the threads off for you when you're ready. And that's a beautiful machine, finely set up. We also put on bias on the edge of the uh, garments with this and put the hems on the sleeves and the, and the ankles with it. So after seeing all these various machines, it struck me that you may have to have different people trained to operate each one of these machines. So I asked Mario how the work gets divided up amongst the staff. Well, uh, the employees here need to know how every aspect of this facility works. But we have some that have some very nice uh, hands when it comes to running that flat lock. There's two people here that really know how that fabric feels because you don't want to stretch that fabric and hold it back as the machine is trying to pull it forward because that makes a pretty wavy seam. The garment would still function well, but to make it look nice, um, you really have to have a touch for that. So not everybody can just sit down there and, and begin sewing. So there's two people that run that machine. And then there's uh, two people that run this machine here. One is the same who, who runs the flat lock also, but she also runs this one, and the fellow who does the cutting and the spreading uh, on the table. He's also uh, very good at sewing, and he can run this one. Next up was the bar tacker, and as Mario explained, this is why none of the threads on your LD Comfort gear will ever unravel. What it does is it makes a, a stitch across something and it does it so fast and also cuts off the threads but that means at the end of our seams where the garment is put together they are bar tacked so you're not going to get an unraveling of a seam i expect that um, riders should be able to ride their motorcycles for 300,000 miles and still be wearing the same garments um, from 300,000 miles ago and i use that figure because a friend of mine certainly has that many and uh his name is Tom Loftus. I don't think he minds me using his name. Uh, 
but uh, he's uh, ridden in our garments for many, many, many years. Ten times, I think, he's run the Iron Butt Rally. And uh, he wouldn't dream of wearing anything else, but uh, he does expect to get a lot of mileage out of his, and, and he does. Jason Jonas, he's got 250,000 miles, I think, each on his, and, and that's how I make the garments, and I want them to last, and so I'm going to only have the absolute top quality garments. You can wash them and wring them out as hard as you want to. You cannot destroy, you can't rip that garment in half, yeah. and that's one of the reasons is because we use this bar tacker to, to uh, finish off all of the edges of the seams. So now that the sewing's complete, the garment heads over to something that looks kind of like a combination between a branding iron and a vise. It's a branding machine, and it's a heat press, actually, and it has a pedestal on it with a rubber coating, and on the top of it, it has an aluminum plate that gets quite hot, and you turn that up to uh, the temperature is maybe 300 degrees, and uh, you place the garment over that pedestal, and then you take one of our... Uh, our logos here or the size the particular size of the thing and we don't like to make tags in our garments that would irritate a person so we actually use these heat transfers and put it right into the garment they should last the lifetime of the garment but it's nice to see the logo on some of our things uh, the grace harbor unders is often maybe more often worn as an outer garment by sports teams soccer teams uh, football baseball that kind of thing and the uh, LD Comfort is generally worn as a base layer underneath other clothes. So for us to spend a lot of time and money on, on logos that you're generally not going to see, well, uh, we didn't do that. And some companies actually have gone away from making base layers because it's difficult to uh, market those. Yeah. And when you see their brand name on hoodies and on tennis shoes and all kinds of, of things like that, then they can market that a little bit better. So after the label, it's over to the inspection table where any defects are discovered, and from there, it's packaged up into the packaging you recognize when you purchase your LD Comfort. Now, we're kind of finished with the production aspect of, of the shop here, but I noticed there was something a little odd over in the on the other side of the shop there was an ambulance, and I needed to ask Mario, what was up with that? Well, that ambulance is sitting there in wait of uh, our marketing for Grace Harbor Unders and LD Comfort, and we're going to use that for commercials. And uh, we purchased that from, again, the city of Hoquiam, which had it as their ambulance. They transferred it over to their police department, and that was their SWAT vehicle, kind of incognito. Well, once they got some uh, proper equipment for that, they decided to surplus that in spite of the fact it was a very fine ambulance, diesel motor on it. Um, they put it on Craigslist, so I put a bid on it and won that bid. I was quite pleased. So we're going to use that for our commercial. The idea of it, if you can visualize a rider going down an absolutely beautiful road, which we have plenty of here, stopping on the side of the road because he can no longer ride because he has a problem in his seating area. <laughs> so he'll park his bike, put a side stand down, get off of his bike and reach around behind him and carefully pull those seams out of his tender skin. Well, that's a disastrous situation when you're trying to enjoy the roads, but here comes an ambulance 
pulls up there next to him and it says LD Comfort and the LD Comfort girls come out, escort him inside the ambulance <laughs> where they assist him with some proper garments. And then when he comes out, uh, he can then again ride his motorcycle and he can wave to the girls as they leave in the uh, LD Comfort ambulance. So besides the LD Comfort Ambulance, there are also two motorcycles, a FJR and an R1200GS Adventure sitting over there. Both of these bikes just recently ran in the Iron Butt Rally and taking off and ending in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And these riders that own these bikes are not living in the United States. So they have asked if I would um, store their bikes for them until they come back so they can ride again. And I thought, well, they're um, customers of mine. How could I say no? So you can see that this FJR, uh, the rider is from Ireland and uh, it's on the battery charger here. And and in a moment, I just turned the key on and in about three seconds and then wait and then push the button and boom, it jumps to life. It's ready for him to, to come and get on it. Now the next bike over there, that's from a lady from Tasmania hmm. and she rides all over the world and this is the bike that she ran in the Iron Butt Rally with and I expect um, she'll be back more often than not but rather than transferring a bike back and forth and back and forth to ride you have all the opportunities to ride if you have a bike here and, and I was happy to store those for my customers and I might store another two one or two bikes here but only for some very, very dear friends if they ask real nicely and I know for a fact that they're LD Comfort riders. (laughs) (laughs) So as you've probably picked up on, Mario actually makes two different lines of products. There's the Grays Harbor Unders and the LD Comfort that we're all familiar with. I asked him what the difference was between the two. It's pretty much the same thing. Now, the specialties for the uh, LD Comfort is that the waistband comes up a little bit higher on theirs to protect you Uh, from your other waistbands from your other garments and if they would dig in if you're stacking waistbands um, that becomes uncomfortable so that waistband is made a little bit higher also the sleeves on the shirts were uh, made for motorcycle riding so they're a bit longer than normal because you're going to stretch your hands out and you don't need that sleeve to crawl up your arm but basically the uh, Grays Harbor Unders are made out of the same fabric. We do have some other products that we make with a little bit lighter fabric. That orange that you see there is thinner. Um, it dries a little bit quicker and it's uh, lighter. However, it cannot hold enough water to be efficient at uh, keeping yourself cool when you're trying to ride in triple digit temperatures, nor will it be quite as warm. Now over all these years, of course, I've had a lot of input and Uh, things from the Iron Butt Association riders and they were the ones that initially helped me to develop this product and why it is so popular in that group because many of them had input into how these are designed and and what it is that I needed to do. So it's not just the uh, ambulance that Mario's managed to to pick up a good deal on. Lots of stuff in his uh, shop started its life elsewhere. One of the more noticeable items is how he ran power to that 50-foot cutting table we talked about earlier. This uh, attachment that you see from the ceiling, uh, that came from the logging industry and my ability to, because I worked for a timber company for 14 years, uh, although I was on road construction, did the drilling and the blasting and built roads. 
but that's a logging tower upside down uh. stuck to the ceiling and those guy chains on there hold it back and on both sides to keep that cable tight yeah. so that the electricity can run the full length of that cutting table without dragging the cables across the patterns <laughs> and I was bid on that. Somebody wanted to bid for um, like over $4,000 to build me a system for that. And I stood here thinking about it and I said, I can do that. So I just went to the hardware store and did some measurements and built it myself. And I saved quite a bit of money. I bet. And yeah. as, as efficient is probably better than what they would have dreamed yeah. that they could do. So we'd pretty much wrapped up everything on the production floor, and we went back out into the lobby area, which also doubles as the retail area. Now, it seemed a little odd to me to have a retail area in a production facility, especially since most of his business is done online, but Mario had a pretty good reason for including it. In the city of Hoquiam, you cannot have a manufacturing facility in a commercial zone. You have to be in an inside of an industrial zone. Well, this building being inside the actual historic district of Hoquiam and being a commercial property, um, you can't use it for manufacturing unless you have an on-site retail store. So uh, this is what we have. And the customers can come in through the front door into the stairwell in the entry and they come into the lobby area, which was the receiving area for the swimming pool. And off to the left, you can see the men's room and to the right is the women's and the signs are still up there and uh, they still have the pool rules here onto the counters that says welcome to the Hoquiam Aquatic Center <laughs> and it has the rules like please no street shoes on the pool deck and a shower is required all that stuff we wanted to leave it look like the pool and we didn't take those signs down actually we actually put signs back up <laughs> where they were before so that the local people that would come in here can still see, recognize it as their pool. They were disheartened that the pool was gone. And uh, now they have that feeling, oh, yeah, yeah, this is still our building. Yeah. And we told them actually, because they thought, well, you guys got our building. It's like, actually, we saved your building. And I'll tell you a little story. I don't know if anyone's too interested in this, but it's rather historic for this area. There was a man, named Omar Parker, and he has a law firm, had a law firm here, and had some partners. His son is now there, and also my son works there as a partner. But he swam here for 50 years since the pool opened. Every single day he would come here and swim laps until the pool closed. As it turns out, towards the end of his life, while well, he was living right down the road here in a care facility, and we wanted him to see the pool and told him what we were going to do with it. So we brought him from there, and I think he was 90-some years old. I'm not exactly sure how old he was in his 90s, I think. And we helped him get down inside that pool before we filled it. And we gave him a great big marker, like one of those fat uh, markers, and we allowed him to graffiti the whole inside <laughs> of that swimming pool. And he wrote his name on there and said that he was the swimmer that was here for 50 years. And he wrote until he became too emotional to continue. And so we helped him out of the pool and he thanked us uh, very much 
for allowing him to do that, but also said that if anybody got this pool, he said he was glad that it was us. And that's why one reason, as a tribute to Omar Parker, that I like to keep this as a pool because to me, uh, his memory and the memory of the people, many, many people learned to swim here and were worked here as lifeguards when they were kids. Mm -hmm. And I want to be as respectful to them as possible uh, in the facilities. Even if LD Comfort would move to some other place, this building would still be a fine building for anybody yeah. and reminiscent of the swimming pool. Mario then took me upstairs to show me the shipping room and the business offices of LD Comfort. It was here that he pointed out another very unique aspect of this building, the roof. The beams in this are substantial. I don't know if you noticed those inside the main room there, they're pretty big. And in this balcony room, they're still huge. But up above there, those boards that you see are actually four-inch square oh. cedar. I say you can. There's a hole cut in the where the some electrical is run up here, and you can yeah. actually see that that's a four by four, not a or a four by six, maybe. Yes, and the ends are on that side are like two by four or more that have been replaced oh. when they uh, replaced the edges around here uh, many years ago. But the inside of this, that's. Wow. solid cedar and that cedar if you think about where that came from this was in 1959 i think that they finished this building what kind of cedar did we have here in hoquiam in the late 50s it was the finest wood that you could get on the planet and this whole entire roof is done with that cedar you could you could probably land the ld uh, comfort chopper on this roof and uh <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll get okay. that next yeah <laughs> Anyway, that's how the, the, this facility is. The building is probably maybe five, over 5,000 square feet downstairs. And then there's this section up here. It's a little around 11,000 square foot, uh, which is, I guess, big enough for us now. But you never know where we're going to go with this. If we can keep going with it, um, we can grow. And the building next door to us, uh, my son owns that building mm. and uh, he just acquired that building and it was the church a church there and before that it was the ymca which explains why the city would build a swimming yeah. pool next to yeah. what used to be the ymca so they went hand in hand many people still believe that this building was part of the ymca and it wasn't mm. but before that um, that building was a Boeing building where Boeing manufactured parts. And Rosie the Riveter, I don't know if you heard of her, she made parts right there in that building huh. next door. It's rather historic. And before that, it was a, a huge grocery store and a, a Grand Central marketing place. It was one of the finest places that you could get in the harbor. Well, I have to imagine there's probably a, a, an old gym over there that would be probably perfect. For... Oh, sure. There's a basketball court in yeah. there still that has the hoops still yeah. hanging on both walls. It has a nice facility in there. So there's room for expansion, certainly. But uh, right now, I think, I don't know what Ben has in his mind, but I think he's going to rent it out for multiple uh, reasons. It has a full kitchen in it too. I thought we could do some great motorcycle rallies. Here. Yeah. Sounds like, sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. So as we were wrapping up our tour, Mario told me two stories that I really wanted to include in this episode. The first one's about Mario's grandfather, who was a long distance rider, but probably not in the way you're thinking. And one thing I want to mention just for the fun of it, there's a little toy that's on the speaker 
of my desk. Maybe we get a picture of that later. It's a tin toy and it's a wind-up toy. And it, if you wind it up, it will run little tiny circles. It has a guy in a green suit on it. And this toy belonged to my father oh. when he was a kid. And I think he had this when uh, he was in Africa. He was uh, born in, in Africa, in Kenya, Mombasa. His father, my grandfather, was uh, worked in Africa from, from Netherlands, where he was born. That's also where I was born. But uh, he went there to run the coffee and the tobacco plantations many, many years ago for Dow Egberts and Vanelli. And he had to go out into the field when he got hired there to straighten out some things. And the way to get there from Kenya uh, to Uganda, he rode a motorcycle. And I guess he was sort of a long distance motorcycle <laughs> rider when you think of the distance between where he was coming and going. And he told me a story of one night he was going out to the fields there to see the field managers and he had run out of fuel because apparently back there in the 20s they didn't have as much fuel as we might have today and he just didn't quite make it he had about two kilometers to go but he had to push his motorcycle in the night through a pride of lions that was next to the road and uh, I don't know. Talk about being tough. To me, that would be something that would make me hesitate. I was going to say, some rally master somewhere is like, hmm, that sounds like a great idea for yeah. a bonus. So, for a ideas. <laughs> so the second story has its origins during World War II in the Netherlands. So motorcycling goes way back in, in my family. My uncle and a man that he was working with collected motorcycles because they would be uh, taken from them if they were found. So he went to the area and took motorcycles and he took them apart and he buried them and uh, wrapped them and huh. preserved them until after the war was over in the Netherlands and then went back and dug them back up and put them back together again and then sold those motorcycles and that's how he helped to take care of the family. and. Uh, the fellow that helped him do that was also the one that helped him learn how to be a mechanic. He came to United States and ran uh, uh, Fiat dealerships and stuff here. And a, a couple of years ago, I went and had my BMW motorcycle. It broke down the drive line, and it went to Ozzy's BMW in California. And I met a fellow named Ozzy, and we were talking about an associate that we knew who was a, a flagger. Uh, for flat track racing and he was called Bouncing Bob Malley who I think still lives up there in Tacoma now. He was my business instructor in the 80s. Took a business class from him. Very nice guy. Well, um, Ozzy knew him from the tracks. He said, I used to race a lot. He says, as a matter of fact, there was a, a film called On Any Sunday mm -hmm. and uh, Bob Bouncing Bob Malley was in that. He was jumping around with his flags and stuff like that. And Ozzy said, well, come over and look at this wall. And he showed me a picture. This was a poster of the announcement that the movie on any Sunday was coming to their town. And they took a picture of Ozzy on his bike. And that was the poster, the movie poster. And I thought, wow, what a startling uh, coincidence this is. And then he says to me, you know where I got that bike? I said, no, where did you get that bike? 
He said, that bike came from the Netherlands. It had been buried during the war. Yes. And I stood there with goosebumps running up and down my back, not knowing for sure, maybe if that was my uncle and his uh, uh, friend who run that shop. And that bicycle shop and motorcycle shop is still open there in the Netherlands now. But that those guys, even my uncle, may be the one that has buried that motorcycle and saved it for him. So... Yeah, that's quite a small world. Yes. And with every episode of Long Riders Radio, we ask our guests the long distance dozen. Uh, Mario was no different. So here we go. Let's hear what Mario had to say. All right. So the first question is, what was your first motorcycle and why? Oh, my first motorcycle was a Benelli 250. And it was made or marketed by Montgomery Wards. And it was called a Wards Riverside. It was a 250 flathead, and I got that because I no longer wanted to ride the school bus in Los Angeles because we were bused to our separate schools for integration hmm. uh, reasons and stuff. Plus that, at nighttime, I could go incognito and go anywhere in that city I wanted. Nobody even knew that I didn't have a license or that I was underage, and anywhere I went... I was free to go because I had a motorcycle, and that was the first thing that gave me uh, that sense of freedom that yeah. I really appreciated. Okay, so where where did you go on your first overnight ride? First overnight ride? Well, I think that was probably down the coast of western United States, or could have been even to towards Yakima, Tri-Cities. I used to travel between the Tri-Cities and here, because it had a little bit of everything that you could throw into one ride when you're talking about the rain and the wet, and then you go over the mountains and even into uh, the White Pass, and then you can go down into the desert where it's hot. So day and night riding, I could practice developing what it was that I first started my long distance riding with. Well, this one's gonna be kind of an obvious one, but what's your day job? Uh, day job is trying to find something to do that is more productive than I did yesterday. Good answer. What is your favorite non-motorcycling hobby? Oh, um, well, I guess it would be target shooting uh, pistols. I like to do that. What's your, what's your go-to, go-to firearm? Oh, I have a number of them that I, I like. Um, I don't know if it's carry pieces or shooting pieces, but I like the Sig Sauer P226 is my favorite target shooting. What is your favorite road? Oh, there's no question. You go to Montesano and you head to the Wainucci Dam, mm. and that road follows uh, the Wainucci River, and it's about 35 miles up towards the dam, and then you can stop at the dam, enjoy yourself there, beautiful scenery, and then turn around and come back. But I'm betting that before you finished back in Montesano, you would want to turn back and do it again. And I can run that road. I have ridden that road well over 2,000 times. Now, that was from 1972, and it was gravel on the upper end, and I used to race my Volkswagen on that road. But now that it's paved, there's no finer road to run on, especially if you pick up the pace a little bit. I've never been on that road, so I'm, that's gonna it's, that's gonna be a, a, a ride coming up here for me. <laughs> it is a must do. Well, yeah, it is. George Barnes, a friend of mine, came up there one time. We had a, a little ride to eat here, and when we came back, we 
picked up the pace a little bit and he said that was one of the finest roads there is in Washington State and George Barnes knows. On the flip side of that, what's your least favorite road? Oh boy, I guess the one that's between here and Montesano because it's got traffic in it and I have to go every single day um, 15 miles back and forth and back and forth to work and I'd rather take my motorcycle and go on some of the back roads to get here but I would never show up for work and I would have to leave real early too so that's highway 12 between here and yeah Montesano. that's yeah. The, yeah and only because I just drive it every single day a couple of times I don't drive it every single day and it would be up there on my list of least favorite roads too yeah yeah <laughs> All right. Um, when you're planning a trip, you using base camp, streets and trips, or are you a paper map kind of guy? Um, I went around the United States, 32 states, with a paper map one time and never had a GPS or a cell phone or a camera or anything, just myself and a stupid paper map. And I had the most fun on that trip than I can ever remember. <laughs> but I do like the GPS. However, I just follow that when I'm planning. Streets and trips is kind of popular uh, in my book, but I don't do a, a lot of that. I will be doing that more, but streets and trips would be the one I would use. So if you get a new motorcycle tomorrow, what's the first Farkle you're going to put on it? Oh, boy. Um, well, a seat. Um, for, for me, if I'm going for a long ride, I don't want to stop because I have pain where I'm sitting. I already know that that's why I make the garments that I make, but also comfort starts from the skin out and that's where I make the LD comfort. But the next item is the seat and I no question about it. And I have a bike that I ride now. Um, Seth Lamb made the seat on it and it's far superior to what I had. All right. So what is that current motorcycle? The current motorcycle I have is I bought from a friend of mine. It's a Honda ST1300. It was a 2003, the first year that it came out. It has the ABS on it. And my friend Joe Zelaski decided that he wanted to do something else and was done long distance riding. So I bought that bike from him and it works well. So I'm assuming you do motorcycle rallies. What was the first rally you ever did? Oh, my first rally I think was the Cognoscenti Group Word Rally which I ran with uh, Joe Zelaski. We rode together on that one, and I set a world record in that rally. World record doing? I received, and this record will never be broken. It is the lowest score ever in the history of the sport since it w its inception uh, for a finisher of a rally, and no one will ever beat that one. What was the score? I think it was negative 53,000 <laughs> points or something like that. Don Moses scored it, but no one will ever score lower and still be a finisher. <laughs> All right, what's your uh, favorite or most interesting location you've been to on your motorcycle? Boy, that's a long list of stuff. Most interesting? I, I just got too many to tell you. I, I know that, uh, like I said, going to the Alamo, Nevada, and running with my friends. Uh, there are some roads up there and times of the day that it's just an absolute screaming blast to go run. Mm -hmm. And that, those are some of my favorites there. Coming out of Ely, Ely, Nevada, and, and heading towards uh, Tonopah, those are some great roads there. That's hard to beat. Yeah. All right, last question. How do you pass the time on a long ride? Do you listen to music, audiobooks, or you just sit and watch the flowers go by? I sit and watch the flowers go by. I have no music, no headphones. Uh, 
Nothing. I don't listen to anything other than the echoes in my head. And that keeps me busy. All right, Mario, you have completed the Aldi Dozen. Thank you very much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I could do this every day. For You can tell that uh, I can talk forever. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you again to Mario for uh, taking the time out to walk me around his shop uh, pretty much for an entire afternoon. I really appreciate that. I had a ton of fun doing that. Um, as for the next show, not quite sure. I've got an idea. got an email from a listener who was wanting to know a little bit more about rallying. And so I think what I might do is just do a kind of a primer on what rallying is, what you could expect if you've never done a rally. Uh, it'll probably, it'll be kind of old news for a lot of people, but, uh, I think it'll probably be a good episode for, uh, for helping out others. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, you'll, you'll be able to tell if I, uh, how successful I was in writing it, depending on what the next show is. Well, if you'd like to get in contact with me, there's lots of ways you can do it. We're on the web at longridersradio.com, Facebook at facebook.com slash longridersradio. On Twitter, we're at longridersradio. And if you're one of the 10 people in the world that still uses Google+, we're there too. Or you can just send me an old-fashioned email at longridersradio at gmail.com. And if you like what you hear on this show and want to help support it, for just a dollar a show, you too can become a contributor to Long Riders Radio. Just head over to longridersradio.com and click on the link that says support. And as always, we need to thank this show's founder, Mr. Michael Cox. You know, I was talking to Mike the other day and I asked him, hey Mike, which would you rather do, have a root canal or listen to this show? And he said, it's pretty much the same thing. Thanks for listening, everyone. Ride safe and have a happy holiday. Happy holiday.